and it's amazing. I've actually been arrested in in Johannesburg, in Kabul, in Mexico, in New York City. I was brought in. I was brought in for questioning. But all of these things have to do with one thing that I think is also a part of this practice, which doesn't really get spoken to or named often, which is who makes laws and who are those laws made for. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer, founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. This week, we bring you Pierre Carlo's interview with artist Yasmani Arboleda. So, Pierre Carlo, please tell us a little bit about this artist leader. Yasmani is a Colombian American artist based in New York who does what he calls these living sculptures. They are difficult to describe. They're almost sometimes they're citywide kind of community artist experiments in which his raw materials are the neighborhoods, uh, sometimes entire cities, and the residents who bring these communities to life are his subjects and also often his collaborators. So I'm going to describe a couple of his more recent projects so that our listeners can get a sense of the scope of what he does. A few years ago in Kabul, Afghanistan, he... um, created this project where he gave away 10,000, where he, with a team of volunteers and community leaders, gave away 10,000 pink biodegradable balloons to residents throughout the city. While the sounds of war were literally reverberating just, you know, down the street, basically. And then in Nairobi, Kenya, he created a project called Color and Faith, which was a citywide project in which he and a team of volunteers painted several religious buildings, including Christian churches, Muslim mosques, and Buddhist temples, in a color named optimistic yellow. This very <laughs> vibrant, you can't miss it kind of yellow. For the foreseeable future, he'll be making art in his hometown of New York City because a few days before the interview, Yasmani learned that starting in August of 2020, I guess he's starting this month, He would be artist in residence with the city's Commission for Civic Engagement. Um, So he's very excited about that. He has a lot of ideas percolating in his head. Yasmani spoke to me from his home in Brooklyn. I asked him to start out by describing his artistic journey up to now. You know, it's really been, when I think about my process in my life, it's been... um a process of really following my heart. I have to say that I come from a a conservative Colombian Catholic family. And as a gay man growing up in Colombia, I think I intuitively as an outsider began to try and understand society uh, from an emotional open heart kind of way. Um, And it's been a process of really like identifying systems and becoming aware of, of uh, all that, all the things that I've been able to, to witness in my life have informed who I am today. And so when I think about it, um, I think about when I was in high school and was in all of the art classes, photography, painting, you know, all kinds of things. I was doing sculpture. And I remember my mom telling me over and over again that if I was going to become an artist, I was going to end up uh, sleeping under a bridge or working at, uh, you know, local fairs where I would paint little kids' faces for money. <laughs> Uh, and it was her way of deterring me from pursuing a life in the arts, really. And it was, it, it, in some ways, because we come from a, a humble family, um, 
it was her way of, of asking me to go after uh, a financial stability that would lead to a healthy life in her mind, the way she judged it. Um, so from that framework, I was so passionate and so in love with the arts and with my my capacity to express myself. Uh, when I was growing up in South Florida, uh, eventually when I decided to go to college, what I decided in kind of in conjunction with, in a conversation with my mother and really thinking about her values and my own, I decided to go to architecture school. Oh. And so I, I actually got a master's in architecture over a period of five years. And while I was studying architecture in Washington, D.C., I understood that it wasn't just about the architecture that I was really going after. I was really interested in understanding uh, how the, the imagination and the practice of the imagination. And so I began to look for programs around the world that would inform my architectural um, uh, career or my, my learning in architecture school. And I eventually went to study industrial design in London. Um, I, I studied fashion design in Milan for one semester. I studied um, communication and, and, and management at Parsons wow. for another semester. And then I, when I did my master's, I went to, to live and work in Brazil for eight months where I was an intern at an architecture firm that was made up by architects, musicians, and painters who were all working in the same space. And what was magical and incredible about that period of time was that I went to Brazil without speaking Portuguese or, uh, and, and nobody there really spoke Spanish or English uh, who was in this firm uh, in the North, in the Recife. And so I had to learn the language while I was, while I was leading a project where I was redesigning all of the branding for the, for the firm, including their website, all of their communications, all of the way that, that, that how they thought about themselves as a group of people. Um, and it was, so, it was the, the, the process of learning this language, learning these people and being creative along the way, producing all of these different pieces of collateral. Um, but in my mind, it's always been this journey of like, gosh, how are people living? And how do I understand how they live? And how do I communicate all of the different aspects of, of how we can relate to each other? And that can go from enjoying eating a piece of pizza together and talking about how our favorite food uh, is Italian, or it could be really thinking through what, our, what is our spiritual practice. To me, these things are related. And so it's really been a journey of, of, of going to these places and not just, you know, going to school and having a, 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 a family of people who are around me through an education, but also like living and working with the people from those places and learning not just their languages, but the way that people live. And so it's, it's really been astonishing in terms of what I've gathered along the way. After I graduated from college, I moved to New York City and I knew uh, that I was really interested in... in in, in, in a play, in working at a place where there was much more than architecture. And so I began to look for firms that had architects and graphic designers and musicians and all kinds of talent, all kinds of talents and skills so that I could be informed by those kinds of, that kind of thinking and that, and that way of being, mm -hmm. all of them informing me at once. And I ended up at this place called Imagination, um, where I worked for five years. And Imagination is a firm that's based in London, but that has offices all over the world. And there I was a three-dimensional designer uh, and then eventually a creative director but all of the work that was that I was doing there, again, it was thinking through, gosh, how do people come together and understand each other? How do we tell stories? Um, how do we, you know, intentionally go after purpose and meaning in our lives and, 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 and acknowledge it and name it so that it shapes the way we make decisions and how we think about ourselves? So then this study, this the, these observations you made, you clearly decided not to... Uh, put to the use of architecture, but to something else. You you pivoted. Right, but then I think it's important that we recognize and we define these things. So like in my mind, architecture is how materials come together. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so far over my artistic practice over the past 20 years, when I think about all of my projects, I'm definitely thinking about how is a staple being put on, to make a book happen? How are people, you know, meeting and joining and, and how are like, what, what, how are we materials in, in, our, in ourselves in the way we approach life and the way we act and, and engage with each other? And so there are a lot of ways in which my architectural training informed the way that I think about space, the way that I think about individuals in space, and, and all of these pieces of, of the puzzle that have been critical to the su- to success, success of my projects. So it's interesting to hear you talk about, clearly you have uh, better than average, let's say, observational skills, and probably I would say empathic skills. But somewhere along the way, you clearly had to become a leader because, correct me if I'm wrong, you're leading, not only do you have audiences, but often your audiences are your collaborators. So -hmm. you have to lead your co-art makers. And then because of the scale of your works, you have to establish community partners around the world. And you also have to navigate all sorts of governmental bureaucracy. So that takes a lot of different leadership skill sets. So let's talk about whether whether your knowledge of your leadership abilities came hand in hand with your artistic discoveries, or did you have to develop both separately? I think I developed both together, actually. Um, one, I, when I think about my, my, my evolution and my growth as a leader, I definitely begin with being in high school. Again, I, in high school, I was a part of Key Club International. And I, this is important because it's an amazing way of in high school, in ninth grade, I came into a, into a room, into a classroom, and I met a group of people who were really interested in how, in community service, really, in thinking about how leadership is learned and experienced by giving back to the community. Oh. And at that point, in ninth grade, I was like, I was so enamored with the idea of these people who cared about giving back and investing and finding them, themselves and their healing as young people through giving back and through caring for others. Um, and so it began my journey. After freshman year, I ran for president of the organization for my high school, and I and I got it. After my after sophomore year, I ran for uh, lieutenant governor, and I was in charge of all the schools in Broward County and Dade County in South Florida. And then in my third year, when I was a junior, I ran for international trustee, and I eventually became an international trustee who was representing all of the key club members from Florida and Jamaica. Um, and what was amazing about that was that it was my way of of feeling belonging and feeling purpose through an organization that accepted and um, treasured my joy and my, my way of being. And so all along the way, as I was doing that and really investing in, in learning about all these different types of people and collaboration, I was also in the classroom with my art teachers in the dark room, doing all kinds of experiments and playing around. And the teachers both who were leading the key club piece and who were leading the arts program in my school, both were so invested in me and my capacity to experiment and to try things and to learn from them, you know, what are, what are these, uh, what are these materials? What can we make? How do we talk about all of these things that matter to us through a way that con- that's connective tissue? And that, as you said, I think the empathic skills were being developed in both arenas in my life simultaneously, and we're kind of informing each other. Because one of the things that's really sweet and funny is that whenever I, a lot of my projects involve the making of name tags, and I always like to name, make them kind of huge and 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 bold. And that began when I was in high school and I was making them for Key Club International 
but I've done, I, I've created crazy fun name tags for the Artist and Citizen Conference, for my coloring face project in Kenya. I mean, everywhere. It's like a, an interesting way. I have found that whenever I'm building community, if I show up with things that feel like gifts from the get-go, everyone opens their hearts and, and is willing and able to commit to these enormous visions that eventually they, that belong to all of us. So... Mm, I love the idea of opening of opening the collaboration of a project with a gift. That's a great lesson. Yeah, it, it really to me one of the and the great lessons of my life is that the uh, dignity is communicated through quality. And if you show up with things that feel like they were handmade and cared for for each individual who's showing up, people take note and they're like, "Oh my god, it matters that I'm here. People see me. People somebody prepared for my arrival." And that completely changes the nature of your relationship to people. Later, I asked him what in his makeup, background, or education made him so fearless. You know, I want to name here one thing that is really critical in my art practice that I name all the time when I speak about it and when I get interviewed or invited into new communities to to work. I name risk as an enormous part of the practice. Mm. And what do I mean by that? is that I think if we know all the answers about a particular process or a particular way of thinking, it's not interesting. There's something about it that is killed in the process of, of naming all the answers immediately or trying to understand it all right away or, or through the process. And I think it's related to this fearlessness because in my mind, I think that the story of my family and where I come from is so, there's so many things about it that are so heartbreaking and and death is a very, was a very real part of my childhood. And so in my mind, I think a lot of my life has been led as if I could die tomorrow. Mm. And so if we don't try and experiment and, and go after our desires and our dreams and, and live in our bodies fully in, the, in, the, in this present, I'm afraid that I won't have time to do it later. You know what I mean? Mm. And there's something about that that's really true in, in the way that I approach the work that I do. Can you talk about, because you've worked abroad also in different cultures, notably, I'm thinking of Nairobi and Kabul, Kabul, where from what I understand, you could hear gunfire and and the war not far. Uh, do you find yourself, do, do you have to modify your leadership skills at all when you work in a different culture than what you're accustomed to or not? I Absolutely. I think you have to really be open-hearted in understanding the particular place and the particular people and, and how those things have shaped each other. Um, and I think that there's, there comes a respect with, you know, being an outsider and being able to look at systems and acknowledge all of the richness and all of the poverty that might exist, exist within any given system. But I can tell you that in, for the work in Kabul in, in particular, it was really a, a, such an incredible learning process because of how, because of, of you know, Afghanistan is, is, is in itself an official Muslim country. Yeah. It's an enormous part of the identity of that place, um, how they think of themselves, how they lead their lives day to day. And I, as a Catholic, and it was so funny, actually, in, in Kabul, all the time I would get the question, are you Muslim? Because I look like them, mm-hmm. but they would be confused by the fact that I, I, I was a foreigner and that I was that my, I didn't sound like them, and also the reality that I was a Christian by, by, by my cultural background. Mm-hmm. That was always like a kind of sticking point. And I think one of the things that's important to know in, in, in that learning and that process there, and it's also related to my work in Nairobi, is that while I was doing the work in those places at that time, I did never acknowledge or named the notion that I was a queer person. Ah. And 
this is a critical piece because I think I'm at a place in my life where I can no longer do that. I have to acknowledge that my, my being queer and my being a homosexual within the constructs that I've lived in in the world are enormously a part of, of how I think and feel and how I inform space and relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was critical that I not share that at that time because I thought, I, thought in, I thought then, and in some ways I think it now too, it would have gone in the way of the work, right? If I told the people in Afghanistan that I was gay, I think that they would have thought or, or my access to resources, my access to be able to connect and do things there would have been different. It would have been altered. I don't know if I, if I, also the reality that in Afghanistan, you could go to jail for the rest of your life if you are named or seen practicing anything to do with homosexuality. Right, you could have put and the same in thing danger. is in Kenya. Right. That's right. And I was actually incarcerated and, and um, arrested in both places uh, for different reasons. And it's amazing. I've actually been arrested in, in Johannesburg, in Kabul, in Mexico, in New York City, I was, brought in, I was brought in for questioning. But all of these things have to do with one thing that I think is also a part of this practice, which doesn't really get spoken to or named often, which is who makes laws and who are those laws made for? And how do, through our artistry, we question these things and give back the humanity to people as people we inherited this earth. And I think so often we forget that because we're inside of these systems that are guided by economics and that are guided by all of these different things that have evolved over the past 200 years. And I think questioning and boldly asking questions around who does this belong to and, and why and how do I how can I act and not act in this space and why is really important. I reminded Yasmani that our original interview was scheduled to take place in early June. This was just as the country was learning about and reacting to the news of George Floyd's murder. At the time, he sent me an email asking to reschedule because he needed to be focused on taking care of his community. So I asked him if he would describe how he's taken care of his community since then. It's been, I mean, again, as you know, the world is being transformed. One of the things that I find incredibly beautiful and important to name is that we now know that the world can change quickly, right? COVID teaches us that we can stop all of society and stay home and, and prioritize the lives of people. And we can do that globally in every country within a span of a week, right? If we know that that, that amount of change can occur in, on this earth through our human beings, we now know there's enormous possibility for what's possible. The possibilities begin to exp- have expanded to a degree that's astounding. And so that to me is a really critical piece of what we've learned through this period of time. When I think about what I've been doing over the past three months uh, while I've been in my apartment in New York and how taking care, what it looks like to take care of your community. It looks like checking in with them over text, over the phone. It looks like over the um, uh, Easter holiday, I knew that a lot of the members of the Future Historical Society, which is a community of people that I really love, that's an enormous part of my life. I knew that many of them were older and were in their, in their apartments alone. Mm during Easter and what we did as a community of people was all the young, younger people in the community said who had other people in, in their spaces, let's say, let's make sure that these people know that they are cared for and that we are thinking of them and that we are literally connected in this way where we can literally order dinner for all of them and bring food and, you know, figure out how to buy the groceries for people and get, the, get it to them without harming them. And truly, uh, continuously connecting like you're a part of a family and you're checking up on people to make sure they're continuing to be okay. And if they're not, to listen to what's worrying them mm-hmm. or making them nervous. I think this the simplicity of human-to-human connection and of being really open about, hey, I'm suffering. Hey, I'm dealing with 
these questions. Hey, I don't know. Can you help me understand? Or I don't feel well. And that's okay. How do we move through this together? Mm. And even with what's happened with George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter and the question of white supremacy and systemic racism and how it permeates all aspects of our life, again, we can sit here and say and ask ourselves and listen, how are we doing? What's happening? What did we inherit? How did we, how did we, what we, how did, how is it that what we inherited informs the way we feel and think in our bodies right now? And to listen, to make space to listen and to make space for people to know that you're thinking of them and that you matter, that they matter to you. So you said something um, about that every town, every community should have an artist in residence, that that's really crucial to this country's continuing transformation. What do you think primarily needs to change for that to happen? Is it that artists need to step up or communities need to invite them? What needs to change? Well, it's related to the change in our language and how we speak about artistry and the value of it in our society. Um, I think it's related in my mind. It's not that the artists, that there aren't enough artists to do that work. It's the reality that we have to change the system. And so I think about policy and, and systemic change through governmental frameworks and, and private organizations and, 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 and public and private partnering to begin to believe that putting artists in all of these spaces, including corporations, will begin to transform how they operate and how they treat their people, right? I founded LimeShift with, I co-founded LimeShift with a group of other people at MIT who were really interested in thinking, how can artists come into communities and corporations specifically and build community within where we transform the spaces people work in so that they feel better because they're acknowledging the humanity of the people that are there. We thought... Mm -hmm. If we made the spaces like artworks that were co-created with everyone who's present, people have a loyalty and a connection to each other that would transform the work that's being done in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what needs to change, I think that corporations, I spoke to one of the founders of B Corps recently, um, Jay Cohen Gilbert, who said, who said to me that he totally agreed with me that, like, that the activation of artists in all these spaces and to think about how is it that government can begin to provide subsidies to organizations, nonprofits, um, for profits and, and collaborate so that maybe we have hubs of artists in every city that can come into projects and into, into groups and, of, and communities of people and begin to activate and look at what's happening and transform it with an open heart. But it really has, to, I think it has to do with policy. It has, it has, I think about the federal arts project that happened when uh, the Great Depression was going on in this country. And mm -hmm. I think we have to now look at that and look at all that we know and that we've learned uh, about over the past few decades, uh, but beginning actually there at that point, what did those artists do at that time when the Great Depression was going on? And how do we think now of, of this Great Depression that I think goes far beyond the financing of our lives and more into like the poverties that exist in, our, in, in the way we think, the poverties of, that exist in the way we think about our education, our, our, um, our religions. Oh, you know, I, I, I often think that we need new words for, for education, for economy, for politics, for journalism, for family, for religion, for democracy. It's really beautiful. When I had the conversation with the, the Commission for Civic Engagement of the City of New York, the, the chair of the commission, Sarah, said to me when I spoke about my art practice, I shared with them that I thought that art was a verb and not a noun, that it mm. happens between people and that it's not just an object that hangs on a wall or on a table, a sculpture that sits on a table to make the space pretty. It's in fact... A, a, a verb that activates our imaginations, that leads to our questioning, that leads to our growth in our spirit and in our, in, in our intellect. 
And it was beautiful. Her response was so astonishing to me. And it was so simple because it matches m my approach in the same exact way. She said, I believe that democracy is that too. It is not a noun, for, for, but a verb. And it mm -hmm. happens among us. And so I think it was that parallel, parallel thinking that made our connection true. And, and, and it, that really serves as I think about the work that needs to be done in the city of New York. What advice, when you considering what you know about yourself today as an artist and a leader, what advice would have been useful for you to receive when you when you were first starting out? You know, I over and over again, I am about to turn 40 in a year. So I'm 30, I just turned 39 in May. And I have to say to you that I am just, over the past couple of years, beginning to truly listen to my inner voice and mm. to really believe that my voice and who I am has value in the world. And when I think about that journey, I think I want to encourage all of the artists out there who are thinking about themselves and their practice and trying to figure out what they do and how they do it. I want to encourage everybody to like really trust what's happening inside of them and to, yes, hear the voices of the critics, of your teachers, of everyone who's influencing the way you think about the work you do in the world. But to really believe that your way of being and your use of language and your approach and the actions that you take on every day to to experiment about what it is that what is your art who are you as an artist all of these huge questions time and again to go inwards and to really allow yourself to be heard to honor your own honor your own voice in a way that's authentic and kind prioritizing that kindness above all, all else can i say one more thing about the last question yes please do the best advice that i've ever received was work hard and be kind to people. Hmm. And I think it's those two things are related. And actually it's related to a thing that I say all the time, which is when you have, when you're, when you have uh, the question of whether to be right or to be kind, always prioritize kindness. I think that, 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 that dismisses our ego and it allows humans to be honest and, relatable to each other. And that to me is an enormous part of how I have found belonging on this earth so far. Wow, Pierre Carlo, he's such a fascinating artist and person. And there was so much about that interview that just jumped off um, to me. You know, he works to me at a, a sort of an intersectionality of his impact on people, his take on culture, uh, his awareness of societies and of pushing the limits of systems. Um, mm. So he really kind of takes both a global and a local view on his work and the impacts that he can make. That's really the first thing that strikes me. And also the fact that his art cannot exist without the community in which he places it. His, his art is his community and it lives to serve his community. Uh, so apparent. Yeah, and that's kind of a theme we've been hearing recently with some of our artist leader interviews is that connection and importance of understanding their community and how to change their community. Um, so the way I would say that in a, in a sort of leadership lens is that he sort of knows his mission. He understands kind of where he's going and what he stands for. And you know, my take is when you have a really clear personal mission, it can really inform the work you do and the people that are going to be drawn to it. And he certainly is guided by that sort of true North compass for himself. One thing that really, that I just love was that thing of uh, when he starts a project, he brings a gift to the participants 
which speaks not only to kind of an innate generosity, but uh, just the fact that he is grateful for any help. And he doesn't take his community's participation for granted. And he talks about that they're quality gifts. You know, they're not just little throwaway things. So it, it makes people feel important, valued, which to me, again, speaks to kind of his values and the way he looks at the world. He really understands the importance of personal touch and, and making connection with people. Really, really great interview, Pierre Carlo. Thanks so much for introducing us to Yasmani. You're welcome. And I hope I get to be in a city someday where I get to see his, his work live and in action. And to our listeners, you can um, I'll include some links to um, to his work and to videos about his work in our show notes. Awesome. And if you'd like to learn more about him and read a longer version of the interview, you can go to our website, uncsa.edu slash artist as leader. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a rating or a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to subscribe. We've got interviews with really inspiring artists, leaders in the works. So keep an eye out. And speaking of collaborators, if you, dear listener, admire an artist leader in your own community that you'd love us to profile in future episodes, please let us know by shooting us an email at keenanarts at uncsa.edu. Our theme music is By the Dimes. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thank you for listening. <laughs>